Today is part two in our sermon series, Short Stories by Jesus, and today we look at a parable that Jesus tells in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 20. It's a parable that is found in other traditions as well, so listen for what Jesus might be saying to us today. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After, after agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same, and about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am, not, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. May God bless this reading to our understanding. My husband and I have three grown children. The eldest will tell you that the middle child had it easier than she did. For example, he enjoyed a later curfew than she ever enjoyed, and he got to go to Europe on an all-expense-paid trip in middle school, and she didn't get to go to Europe until she borrowed the money in college to make her own trip. Now, the middle child will tell you that the youngest he had it super easy. He got to go to Europe the summer before first grade, and he got to go to the private college of his choice, and mom and dad were way, way less strict on him than on the middle child. My own mother-in-law used to try very, very hard to keep her children from comparing themselves to the other kids in the family. At Christmas time, if she gave one daughter a pressure cooker, then all the daughters got pressure cookers, whether they wanted or needed one or not. And if one son-in-law got brown paisley socks, then all the son-in-laws got brown paisley socks, even if they didn't care for paisley, because mom had to keep things perfectly even. So Jesus tells a story about an owner of a vineyard. In the morning... The owner of the vineyard hired some workers and sent them out to work and pick grapes. Later in the morning, he hired some more, and they also got their hands purple while picking the fruit of the vine. 
At noon and at three o'clock, more laborers were hired to work out in the hot sun, and at five, still more. Now here's where the story gets messy. What the owner of the vineyard should have done is pay the ones who were hired first their daily wage and then send them on their way. But instead, the vineyard owner paid the last ones first, and they were paid a denarius, which was a normal daily wage, not a lavish amount, but certainly enough to put food on the table for one day. And then the ones who were hired at three o'clock were paid, and then the ones hired at noon were paid, and when the first ones who were hired in the morning got paid, they were already salivating because they they could just picture that if the ones who were hired at five o'clock got paid a denarius, that they would get paid maybe five times or eight times or ten ten times that amount, but they didn't. They got the exact same amount, and they stomped out of the vineyard grumbling. This hardly seemed fair. Surely we can all relate. The parable itself makes us squirm. It makes us frustrated. It just doesn't feel right. Why would those who only worked an hour get the same pay as those who worked all day in the scorching sun? Well, when parables begin to make us squirm, then they are probably close to doing what Jesus meant for them to do when Jesus told these parables. They startle us. The parables do more than make us think. They make us feel strange. They make us even feel miffed or offended and they push us beyond the place where we are comfortable. The parable reminds all of us of that feeling that we get when we begin to compare ourselves with those around us. In season one of the long-running TV show Grey's Anatomy, a group of medical interns begin their surgery rotations at the hospital. On the first day of the first show, these interns show up at the hospital and they are told by the chief resident that some of them will not make it to the end of the program. Some of them will drop out, they will quit, some of them will get burned out, and some of them will get pushed out. And the competition is set on the first day, and they begin to shove and push ahead of one another, trying to hold up their hand and make sure that they get selected for the open heart surgery so that they can prove what a good physician they will be. When I was a young minister here, still single, my office overlooked the sidewalk where the moms in yoga pants and tennis skirts would come and drop off their kids for preschool. Still single, I looked out the window and I wondered, will I ever be a mom? Will I ever drop off a kid in a cute Halloween costume for preschool? Envy creeps in. When we see a friend at the grocery store, we say, how are you doing? And they say, busy. And we say, oh, me too. So busy as if we can compete with one another in importance and value because we are so busy. And once we have kids, we begin to wonder, how does that family do it? I mean, their kids are all excellent athletes. They make great grades. And I just drove past their house and their lawn was perfectly manicured. Why do some people have it so easy and I'm working so hard and life is not that easy for me? 
Even within the church, envy creeps in. Why does that new member get to chair that committee? I've been here 25 years and nobody's ever asked me to chair anything. My own husband loves to tell about his grandmother who in the small town of Lair, North Dakota, would carry her beautiful potluck dish in to the church supper, and then she would carry it proudly out. It had been scraped clean. Everyone loved her dish, while those other women carried home those half lima bean casseroles that no one really wanted to taste. In the 19th century, the Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book it was called, The Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. In the book, he says, Imagine you were standing before three people. One is a king, one is a beggar, and one is a man just like you. In front of the king, you hope that he will not despise you because of your inferior status. In front of the beggar, you hope that he will not feel so deeply envious of you for so much you already have. And in front of the man like yourself, you hope that he will be pleased with you. Kierkegaard says, the problem is comparison. He calls comparison evil. It gets in the way of our willing the one thing, which is our desire for God. He says, comparison makes life wretched. But I think when Jesus told the parable, he knew that we needed to see how often we compare ourselves to others and make our lives wretched. If Jesus had only told the story differently and paid those who worked the full day first, then we wouldn't have to pay attention to this dynamic where it bothers us that some get more than what we get. The parable then culminates when the landowner answers the grumbling workers in the vineyard, saying, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Are you envious because I am generous? The problem, says the parable, is our envy. God is generous to all of God's children, and we are envious. Another way to translate this word envy in the text is with the phrase, evil eye. We look at one another with an evil eye. Some versions of the Bible even translate this, this particular verse, is your eye evil because God is generous? And I love this. I love thinking of envy as our evil eye because it identifies the problem as one of perspective. As long as we keep comparing ourselves to each other, we will always find that there are kings and there are beggars in our midst. We will always envy, and we will always be the source of someone else's envy. We will always see that there are winners and losers, the first and the last. But if we shift our gaze, then something changes. If instead of looking around at other people, we instead look at God, then we will begin to see God's goodness and generosity. Then we will begin to see that no one, not one of us, deserves God's lavish gifts of life and beauty and all the riches of life that are ours. Every single one of us was hired at the last hour. No one earned God's love, God's grace, 
As one scholar put it, if the parable is about the goodness of God, then it invites us to give up our envy and calculation of reward and instead look at God. Will that one thing embrace God's goodness? I think the parable tells us that in God's realm, we don't need to sit around feeling wretched out of envy for one another. That's how the parable begins. The kingdom of heaven is like, and so the kingdom of heaven is like that moment when we turn our eye towards God and notice God's overflowing bounty and goodness and grace in our own lives. Barbara Brown Taylor tells a story from the mystical tradition of Islam. The story is about an 8th century mystic who was running through the city one day. In one hand, she carried a torch, and in the other hand, she carried a bucket of water. What are you doing? The mystic replied, I want to burn down the rewards of paradise with the torch, and I want to put out the fires of hell with this bucket of water because both block the way to God. The mystic then prayed, God, if I worship you for fear of hell, burn me in hell. And if I worship you in hope of paradise, excuse me from paradise. But if I worship you for your own sake, grudge me not your everlasting beauty. Barbara Brown Taylor said that the story reminds her that all of us are called to turn and love God unconditionally. When we as Christians are tempted to act from fear of divine punishment or seeking divine reward, then all of us need a bucket of water dumped upon our heads. In the kingdom of heaven, we see clearly that God loves all of us unconditionally. The amazing part of turning our eye towards God and glimpsing the God who pays us not based on merit but on compassion is that then our resentment towards one another, it begins to fade. Consider this true story about two great American authors and their relationship. Wallace Stegner was a professor at Stanford and he became a prolific author of many novels and essays. One of his students in 1958 was Wendell Berry, who is much beloved in the world of literature and has spoken here at our church. It was Wendell who told me to go and read this collection of essays written by his old friend and mentor, Wallace Stegner. In that collection is a letter written by Stegner to his former student, Wendell Berry. Now, one might imagine that these two men would feel a keen sense of competition. Why was Stegner's student in many ways much more well-known than the elder professor? Why was Stegner's student bold enough to turn him down when he offered him a job teaching at Stanford? Wouldn't the old professor feel a great deal of envy for his former student who has become a celebrity, a writer, popular with all ages all across this land? But instead, in this letter towards his former student, the senior professor praises 
his young protege. He, he praises not only his writing, he praises his integrity and his character. Stegner says to his young student, your gift of words is outdazzled only by your rare character, your beliefs, your qualities. He says to his young friend, your writing is a byproduct of your living. And then he says, I only have one word to describe all that you have given to us. It is the only word that fits, and it is a word that you taught me. It is grace. Grace.